that's the biggest, baddest, most functional part of that system, it's not a fair fight at all. You have to make this global order, the only global order the world has ever known, and play it forward. The Americans created a global structure in order to fight the Cold War that was in the process of collapsing right now. They are setting themselves up for an internal purge. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? From markets to mortgages, from policy to politics and everything in between, please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The 13th in the 2020 Humanar series featured the effervescent Peter Zion, a geopolitical strategist and the author of three superb books on the world around us, The Absent Superpower, The Accidental Superpower, and his most recent work, Disunited Nations. Peter's books do a fantastic job of laying out the geopolitical landscape and have helped me gain a far richer understanding of the advantages and the challenges which affect every major nation in our fragmenting world. So I was absolutely delighted to get the chance for a little tour of that world with him, given the massive changes we're currently witnessing. So please welcome my friend, Peter Zion. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's great to see you again. Hello from Colorado. How are things where you are? It, Colorado, I thought you were on the, the set of the Merv Griffin show there from, uh, from Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> we am pleased. It, it's, really, it's great to see you, and, and I'm so pleased you could do this because, um, as I say, you, you very kindly sent me this book um, before it was published, and I've, I've, I read it once then. Uh, I'm, I've read it again since, and I'm back to the, about the third chapter, my third time through making. Oh, I apologize to everyone that you know. No, it's it's such a great book, and it's such a fantastic framework for people where you just go through countries and the scorecard idea is at the end. So perhaps, I guess the best thing to do for people that, that haven't read it is just talk about the genesis of the idea and how you came to think of it and and how you came to write it the way you did. Sure. So my background, I am a developmental economist. So it's all about what works where and why and why if you pick up the same set of policies and drop them over in the next town over, it's usually an utter disaster. So it, uh, for my whole career, it's been about building an understanding of the geographic and environment, and how that shapes social change and cultural change and economic change and strategic issues. I worked for a company called Stratfor for 12 years, and I was one of the people that helped kind of knit together the world. And ever since I left, I guess that's been nine years ago now, I've been kind of peeling out bits of that understanding, this tapestry of how the world works and been playing it forward for clients so that they understand what's coming in terms of uh, the regions that they're operating in and the economic sectors that they care about. So when you when you came to putting um, this United Nations together, and perhaps we should actually talk a little bit first about the backdrop to those with with the accidental superpower, particularly. Um, talk about the previous books and how that kind of set you up for for disunited nations. Sure. So accidental blah, 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 let's try that again. Accidental superpower came out about five six years ago now. Uh, the idea of accidental was that the world has evolved in the way that it has because of a series of technological revolutions. And as technologies evolve, they tend to favor specific geographies. So the best example is probably deep water navigation. It was developed by a bunch of people who lived on a peninsula, the Iberians, who used it to kind of get a, do an end round around the economic and strategic environment of their era. But as good as deep sea navigation is for a peninsula, it works better for an island. So eventually it migrated to the United Kingdom and eventually from there to the United States. Uh, the moment in history that we're in right now is unique for two reasons. First of all, the two dominant technologies of our day, deep water navigation and industrialization, work better in the United States than they do anywhere else. 
And second, the Americans created a global structure in order to fight the Cold War that was in the process of collapsing right now. You put those things together, and you have to go back to an older way of operating. So instead of globalization and interconnectivity and energy markets and all of that, you have to look at countries about how they succeed or fail on their own merits. And since the technologies work best in the United States, and the United States has the best geography in the world, we are moving towards a re-centralization of economic power and military power in one specific place, and that's the United States. You know, the, um, your other book, The Absence Superpower, perhaps is worth a little mention too, just because I think it all it all helps set the stage for, for disunited nations. Uh, so Absence Superpower, there, there were a number of other technologies that we mentioned in the course of accidental superpower. One of them was the shale revolution in the United States. And the, the reason that Absent eventually was written is because the shale revolution just took on a life of its own. It progressed so quickly. Yeah. When Accidental came out, we were thinking that by the end of 2020, North America as a unit was likely to be energy self-sufficient. And it turns out that the United States achieved that goal all by itself back in 2018. So putting that much more emphasis on American, not preeminence, but American exceptionalism, not that the United States is better than any place else, just the idea that the United States can operate as, at its, as its own unit, and if the country that is responsible for maintaining the ceiling of the global order doesn't need to for economic reasons or strategic reasons, the pace of the decline of the global order can really accelerate. And that is absolutely what we were seeing before coronavirus came around. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. I, I've seen you present a number of times. And it's funny, my takeaway from all of them was how... Um, how pragmatic you were about the United States, because you acknowledge its supremacy in many areas, but you're always very good at acknowledging its weaknesses and its flaws and all that stuff. And and God, I love Twitter. When I when I put the uh, the thing up to say, you know, here's what I'm going to do next week. Talk about the first tweet I got was from some guy who said, "Oh, another run-of-the-mill China basher," you know, which 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 <laughs> it's it's Twitter in all its glory. But you know, I, I knowing as I do and, and having read you and having watched you. That's so far from the truth. I mean, when you when you talk about these countries, you lay out very clear reasons for each country's strengths and flaws and weaknesses and where they stand. So, so let, let's kind of go through the, the the overall premise, I guess, for disunited nations about this this crumbling world order that you touched on a second ago. So, so perhaps you can um, lay out that global order as you see it, and and then kind of transition into into how America's role in that is now changing. So you have to go back to World War II, or honestly, even a little bit before. Uh, in, the, in the imperial era, we basically fought over everything. And commerce by itself was a national good that was to be warred over. Uh, everybody had colonies in order to supply themselves with raw materials or to have captive markets. That required a globe-spanning navy for everyone, and those navies clashed over everything. What set the Americans apart, uh, first during the imperial era, they more or less had a continent to themselves. But once we got to World War II, the entire imperial system had been wrecked. So the Americans, since their system was in a different hemisphere, were able to impose a new reality on the various empires. We basically paid everyone to be on our side because we were scared. We had come out of World War II, we were in central Germany, we were facing down the Soviets, and we we're like, holy crap, there is absolutely no way we can win this. We need to have everyone who was on both sides of this war standing shoulder to shoulder, not behind us, not beside us, in front of us, right. facing down Stalin with yeah. us providing them with support. That was the plan. Now, how do you get 40-odd nationalities who have just completed the most devastating genocidal conflicts in human history to put aside their epic poem of grievances and ally on a common cause? Well, you pay them. <laughs> so, <laughs> we didn't simply provide strategic overwatch and military ballast. We literally paid them to be on our side. We created a global order that allowed any of them to go anywhere in the world at any time and bring home any raw commodity that they could afford, manipulate it, process it into a finished good, and then re-export it safely to our market for hard currency. We basically provided the direct and indirect economic support that was necessary for them to become advanced countries again. And that took us right up to the Berlin Wall falling. The problem in my country is that, then what? Right. The president at the time, Herbert Walker Bush, wanted to have a national conversation where we would all publicly discuss what we wanted to see out of the world. 
How do we take this alliance, the greatest in human history, how do we take this global order, the only global order the world has ever known, and play it forward? And we voted him out of office for his audacity. And we then consistently voted for people who had absolutely no interest in foreign affairs, and that has brought us to where we are today. The United States pr provides the global structure and pays all the dues to make it work, but is no longer getting anything from it. And so Americans have lost interest. Well, we'll come back to that because the parallels with China and the One Belt, One Road as, as a playbook is, is eerily familiar to me. But, but, but let's go back to H.W. Um, Bush, because as you say, he, he was a man with all the credentials, right? He, he, he'd done all the right jobs. He'd been in all the right places. And you know, some would argue being director of the CIA is the wrong job. But you know, his, his understanding of foreign policy, his understanding of foreign currencies and his relationships around the world were very solid to have that conversation. Do you think that, that that was a major turning point, not just for America, but for the rest of the world when, when they voted him out and Clinton in? I would say that everything happened between 1989 and 1992 kind of falls in that bucket, including the first Bush presidency. Because that was the point in history where the United States honestly was just directly making the decisions for everyone and no one really pushed back about it. Uh, nuclear war tends to focus minds and having somebody at the helm who was like, okay, we won this conflict. We no longer have to be in a system of mutually assured destruction. Let's now have a conversation about what's next. And for the deafening silence on both the domestic front in the United States and the global front about, as to what's next gave us the chaos of the 1990s. Now, for people in the financial industry, that chaos was fantastic because it was kind of like an entirely new frontier opened up globally. And it was the only decade in American history where Americans were not convinced that the end was nigh. It's like that's our one optimistic point on the world writ large. It was a great decade, uh, but eventually it passed. And the Americans continued to provide the global system, and so other countries started taking advantage of that. Some were allies, some were foes. Some have evolved into something greater. Uh, but what's happened now is that so many countries have become so dependent upon that system that when the Americans leave, and they, they are leaving, that system can no longer support them. And that's the challenge we face today, and that was the challenge back in January before any of us had heard of coronavirus. And what coronavirus is doing is just kind of kicking all of this into high speed. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's amazing what's happened in those, those last three months. Uh, so so let's, let's talk a little bit about because that, that sets up the framework of disunited nations perfectly. I mean, the, the kind of backdrop of that book is this U.S. withdrawal, this U.S. retrenchment, um, and what happens when this, this global order uh, comes apart. So so let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, what the global order was prior to America's decision to pull back from it, when that pullback started, and how the dominoes have toppled thus far? Well, the origin was ultimately in the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. That's when the Americans met with all of the various allies to decide what the route forward was going to be. Everybody expected us to impose a new empire on everyone and start extracting costs. Instead, we did the opposite and started paying everybody to be on our side. Uh, that carried through the entire Cold War system right up until the end. So the, the, for the Americans, the strategic rationale for the order ended when the, fall, when the wall fell in 1989, and we thought we were going to have a transition to something new. We never did. Uh, the 90s were a fun decade for everybody, but when we got to 2001, that was the moment where the Americans started to really question things, and the, we started seeing pushback across the American political system, left, right, center, and both fringes. So in 2001, three things happened. Uh, people obviously are familiar with 9-11, and while you can come up with any number of reasons about how we carried out the global war on terror, perhaps in the, the least productive way possible, uh, from the American point of view, when we reached out for, to our allies for assistance, the silence was deafening. We got some help from Australia and Britain and Canada, and a little bit from the Germans, and that was most of it. Uh, in fact, we had some countries, um, France and Germany most notably, who started leading coalitions of countries against yeah. some American positions. And the issue isn't whether or not the French and the Germans were right or wrong. The issue is that the Americans had felt that they had done so much for the world for the last 70 years, and then to all of a sudden have some of its firmest, longest standing allies 
not just second guess, but to corral countries against it. That was considered deeply offensive. That was considered against American national interests, and that changed the tenure of the conversation in the United States. The second big issue was, of course, the euro creation. You know, here is a region that had just come out of literally centuries, centuries of mutual bloodletting. And it was only the American occupation, only the American-led order that allowed Europe as a unified, free, and peaceful entity to even exist. And for some of the not-so-unstated authors of the euro system to say the primary reason of this is to displace the U.S. dollar as the global currency, that was rude. And it <laughs> colored everything that happened in American policymaking from then on. The third big event was with the Chinese, uh, with the EP3 spy plane incident. China had never been a functional advanced economy throughout its entire history. In fact, it usually had been at war with itself or preyed upon by outsiders. The global order changed that, and the Nixon-Mao summit didn't simply bring the Chinese over to the American side in the Cold War. It set the Chinese up for the economic boom they've experienced since 1989. And for the Chinese to be dicking around in the, East, or sorry, in the West Pacific, uh, when it's the U.S. Navy that allowed the Chinese economy to interact with the rest of the world, that was seen as a breach point. And so these three factors changed the conversation in the United States a little bit, but moreover, it changed American culture when it came to looking out at the world. Before 2001, it was the very small groups on the fringes that didn't like the American position in the world. With those decisions that were made in 2001, it steadily crept towards the center. And by the time we got to the debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump over who was going to be president the last round, the entire Democratic establishment and the entire Republican establishment was openly debating how to dial back America's role in the world. And with America, without America in the world, there is no global system. Some countries have seen this coming and are preparing for what's next. Most have just assumed that the Americans are just going to continue what they've been doing for the last 70 years because it's what they've been doing for the last 70 years. And those are the countries that are going to be facing the greatest shocks moving forward because this is they're going to come out of COVID and it's going to be over and they're going to have no idea what to do. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny when you when you when you talk about it and you read your books, it's clear that that this kind of great withdrawal on America's part goes back that far. But it kind of it kind of snuck up on everybody. I don't think people realized what was happening until it, you kind of had this sudden snowball effect under the Trump presidency when when suddenly the, the press start writing about it. And it's much more overt when you have it from the podium out you know, on the on the on the in the Rose Garden, you know, actually telling that we're going to withdraw, we're going to pull back and NATO should pay this stuff. So yeah, th this this kind of brings us to this 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 period in time where we've got this, this the rise of China, the, the Thucydides trap stuff going on. And yet when you when you look at your book and we come back to that, you know, China bashing, when you lay out in your book your reasons, and I think uh, if I remember rightly, the word you used to describe China in the report card was overhyped. And so, so talk a little bit about China because I, I think I think people fall into two camps with China. They either see it as this tremendous threat, or they see it as a complete laughing stock and, and and nothing to worry about. Where does it fall in your framework, and 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 how and why? Well, I would be closer to the laughing stock than right. the total threat, but I'm not that far over. Okay, so there are certain things that countries need if they're going to be successful over the long term. They, they need a border structure that prevents invaders from getting to them. They need naval access that allows them to access the wider world for trade in order to prevent other people from coming to them. They need a stable demographic structure that allows them to generate sufficient investment to fund their system, but also sufficient consumption to make it sustainable. They need access to resources, whether those resources are food supplies or energy supplies. China, on every single measure, falls flat. It just sucks. Uh, their borders are open. Uh, their coasts are not indented. They don't have any good ports that are natural. Their coasts are paralleled by the first island chain, which is peopled by hostile forces. So even today, with the 40-year naval buildup that we've seen out of China, they still can't penetrate the first island chain. They might be able to take Taiwan in a fair fight. Who fights fair in war? <laughs> uh, the one-child policy, 40 years on, they've run out of people who are age 35 and under. So consumption is impossible. 
They've got a huge population that's moving into mass retirement. And say what you will about the Chinese when it comes to ethics, I don't think they're going to liquidate the retirees. So they're going to have an Italian-style pension crisis on top of everything else. What growth we have seen out of China that might be sustainable, and that is stretching the definition of the word sustainable, is export-driven. That requires access to a global market, which they can't guarantee. They can't even guarantee their own supply lines within the East Asian sphere, much less reach the Western Hemisphere or the far side of Asia. In addition, you know, last I looked, despite all of the fluff and fury to the contrary, this is still a fossil fuel-driven world. The Chinese get 85% of their energy from other continents. And the oil is probably the biggest problem. Most of that comes from the Middle East, which means it has to sail by Iran and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and India and Myanmar and Thailand and Indonesia and Singapore and Vietnam and Malaysia, and in many cases, Taiwan itself. And that assumes that nobody with a navy gets in the way like the United States or Japan. This is not simply a weak country. This is a country that could only exist in a very specific moment in time when the Americans are providing global strategic cover, there's a global demographic moment that wants a lot of consumption, and no one that is a traditional foe of China is allowed to do anything. And that's where we've been since 1990. And that's almost over. And it's interesting, you know, when, you, when you read the book, um, you know, anyone that, that listened to that would say, oh, you're just bashing China. But when you read the book and you lay out the, the mechanics of supply lines, and the mechanics of their borders and the porousness, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable when you put this stuff in very basic terms, just how much of a struggle it is for China. Because I think when you're in the financial world, you, you, you kind of look at the big stick that it waves in the financial world and you assume that that translates. But really, when, when, so when you read the book and you go through it, it, it really doesn't. And, and, you know, when you talk about none of China's rivals um, being in a position to, to step up and challenge it, I think one of the other uh, great chapters in the book was the chapter about Japan, and that 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 report card I do remember was heavy. So, so I want to talk about it because it, that traditionally Japan is China's big rival. So, talk a little bit about Japan and and how they may be a fly in China's ointment, and then Japan specifically, what might lay in front of them in the next couple of decades? Yeah, I would say that Japan isn't exactly a fly in China's ointment; it's more of a freight train. Right. Uh, Japan has a lot of things going against it. Why don't we start with the weak points and then we can say what matters. It's the world's oldest and fastest aging demography. Consumption has been flatlined now for almost 20 years. Uh, it's difficult to develop islands. It's, it's difficult to even imagine uh, Japan being able to be self-sufficient in food and energy is just hilarious. However, to counter all of that, they've got a couple things going for them. First of all, their cities are on the first island chain as opposed to the mainland, so they face the deep blue. They don't have to worry about any other country constraining them. And they have the world's second most powerful expeditionary navy, complete with two fully functional supercarriers, something that the Chinese don't have at all. So if it ever did come to a fight between the Chinese and the Japanese, the Japanese wouldn't attack the mainland. Why would you do that? That would be stupid. You interfere with their shipment far from shore where the Chinese can't do anything but issue protests to the UN. In fact, you send one flotilla down to the Indian Ocean just to cut the energy supply line, and that's it. The lights go off in China in less than six weeks. This, it's not a fair fight at all. And one of the really perks that the Japanese have figured out how to deal with their advanced demography is they find countries with consumption-led demographics to invest in. Build where you sell. It's not just a catchy slogan. It's a national security strategy, and it works. And how does... How does that change if we are going into an era of deglobalization? Is is that a problem for Japan, or are they so embedded in those countries that it that it, it won't affect them as badly? Well, there's no way that there's going to be 100 percent salvaging. But the the Japanese have been very aggressive, very forward thinking about establishing relations with various various American areas. They're very active in Texas and the American South in particular, so that gives them a certain degree of political influence. They've been working very aggressively with the Indians, the Southeast Asians, and the Mexicans as well. 
not all of those are going to turn out in the long run, but all of those are consumption-led economies with relatively limited security concerns. It's about as clean an investment profile if security is going to be part of your, your math as you can get. So, so you know, Russia is, is another, obviously, big chapter in the book. Um, the word you use, I think, is panicked for Russia, if I remember rightly. You know, this, this China, and someone's actually asked the question for me, that the, the Russia relationship with China, obviously, if you take into, effect, uh, take into account what you said earlier, they have that border. Russia has natural gas, which could be a solution to the oil problem. How do you see Russia and also that Russia, that Sino-Russia relationship and, and whether that needs to be strengthened for both sides or if it uh, favors one or the other? Well, only the Russians can decide ultimately whose side they're going to be on. Uh, under the Putin government, the, the general decision has been made that the population and the government and the intelligence services are so pathologically anti-Western in general and anti-American in, in specific that any other potential partner, regardless of terms, is a better partner for Moscow, at least in the midterm. And so they've basically bellied up to the Chinese. And the Chinese are very happy with this. They're very happy with the Russians paying for infrastructure that will never get paid back. They're very happy buying the shelf model of all the latest defense gadgets and the reverse engineering them in China and then never buying anything again. And so basically the Chinese have been raping the Russians for all that they're worth for about 10 years now. How long that will last? That's entirely up to the Russians. Uh, the challenge the Russians have is twofold. The first is geographic. They don't have any really good geographic barriers. One of the reasons the Russians have always been so paranoid is people can invade them from any direction. I'd be paranoid too. Uh, the second big piece is between echoes of demographic collapses in World War One and the collectivization and the Ukrainian famine and World War II and Brezhnev's mismanagement, it's all kind of crested at this moment. And there's just a complete gutting of the Russian population uh, in skilled labor of people aged roughly 55 and under which I realize takes you right up to retirement, and for everyone else in ages roughly 35 and under. So the Russians have the sickest population in the world. It's like the third fastest aging in the world, and it's, the country is quite literally dying on its feet. You take physical insecurity, you combine it with demographic collapse, and this is Russia's last moment. And whoever gets into a fight with Russia next that's the last Russian war. Will it be China? Will it be Germany? Will it be the United States? There's a lot of wiggle room in all of those, but uh, remember that Russia has the worst relations with all of its neighbors of right. any country in the world right now. So the idea that they're gonna go out quietly, I find unlikely, would be the best for everybody. Uh, but Russian history is very rarely about what is best. No, and, and, and they, they tend to fight pretty hard to the last man as well. Absolutely. As history would tell you. So, so, but when you look at that, I mean, and it's interesting that, that so, so many people would have a reason to go to war with Russia. They're certainly not making it any easier to like them with a lot of the stuff that's going on recently. But yeah, who, who's most likely to take that on, do you think? It, it, would it be a miscalculation? But if it was a calculated, uh, calculated aggression, who's most likely, whose best interests is served by that? Well, the challenge was figuring out what the Russians are going to do is logic only plays a certain role. After that, it gets into emotion and whether or not they get caught up in, in uh, short-term affairs. Also, when you have a near dictatorial system, decisions that are made by the handful of people at the top or honestly the one person at the top can spin out of control very quickly. So let me kind of give you the, the three options. First is the United States. The U.S. couldn't care less. Yeah. The United States has, has fewer troops stationed abroad than any other time since at least the 1920s. We are looking to get out of complications, not into them, and certainly not with a nuclear peer. So the United States honestly just isn't there in numbers enough for even the Russians to think that that's a likely conflict. Uh, number two would be the Chinese. Now, if I'm right about China, and it's a China of weakness, China doesn't have the military capacity to reach out militarily to capture something that would help it with its current situation, with the possible, possible exception of a nationalist grab for Taiwan simply to beat the nationalist drum. Right. So it's probably not going to be the Chinese. That and the Russians were very clear back in the Yeltsin administration, where they told the Chinese that if you know if you try to invade Siberia to get our resources, we're not going to meet with tanks and guns. Uh, we're just going to nuke you and call it a day. So the Chinese have never prepared for that eventuality. I don't think it's very likely. That leaves Europe. Now, there are two countries that matter here. 
the Russians have a demographic collapse, but they still have 140 million people, or maybe 130 is a more accurate read. The Russians kind of make up data. Uh, and the other one is Germany. Now, Germany faces a demographic collapse too, but Germany has a couple other things that people forget about. Uh, number one, because of that demographic collapse, they need help from other countries to maintain their manufacturing supply chains. German labor is very highly skilled, but not all manufacturing chains require very high skilled labor. They need some labor that's a little bit further down. That's Poland, that's Hungary, that's to a certain degree, probably in the future, Ukraine. So the Germans in a post-America world aren't gonna go west because the French keep their system to themselves. They have to go east. Well, the Russians are paranoid beyond belief about things that are coming in from their west. Most of the attacks that they've suffered over time has come from that direction. So the Russians are trying to reestablish the Soviet era curtain that they had in order to get some strategic depths. So you've got the Germans for economic security going east and the Russians for physical security going west. We've seen this movie before. We know how it plays out. Right. What's different this time is it's the last time. Now, when you say the last time, is that is that demographic based or is that basically just the scale of the kind of conflict that it would take? Oh, God, I hope it's demographic based. Yeah, <laughs> it's, right. Yeah, it's like, you know, the Germans could build a functionally nuclear weapons program probably in an hour and a half if they felt crushed. I mean, they simply <laughs> definitely have the technological capacity to do that. And the Russians obviously have plenty of uh, uh, legacy equipment. Uh, no, I was speaking about demographics. Both countries have aged past the point of no return. The average age in both countries is well north of 45 right now. Birth rates have collapsed on both sides. So whenever they do have another conflict, they will lack the financial, fiscal, demographic, and economic potential to regenerate their own societies. For Germany, it's pretty straightforward just because the birth rate has degraded so far for so long. They've been in negative rates now uh, since reunification. For the Russians, the situation is a little messier because only about 70% of the Russian population is actually ethnically Russian, and the other 30% is primarily, although not exclusively, various Turkic minorities such as Tatars and Chechens. And so when the Russians crack, whenever that happens, however that happens, they also then have to deal with losing control of vast swaths of their own territory. Uh, we've seen this movie too uh, in the past. Um, we're going back to Tatary, for those of you who know your history. So, so let me ask you a question that, that, that's a bit more generic actually. We'll come back. There's, there's plenty of other countries that I want to talk about, but you know, when when we talk about this, the, the, the term demographics is used an awful lot. And anytime you're using demographics in analysis for, for the work you do, it's extraordinarily powerful because it, it helps you see a very predictable future in arguably the most important input into the future of a country. But when you when you talk to the investment world, in my experience, 30 plus years in this business, finance people struggle greatly to to weigh demographics because there's such long-term trends that people tend to just discount them altogether. How do you go about taking something that's so important in your world and to many people in investment is just too far down the track? How, how do you go about explaining that to people and, and dealing with that disconnect? Well, the advantage that I've got is there have been very few true points of demographic inversion globally. And because it takes 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years before you start seeing changes to economic structure, usually the system can adapt. Uh, the challenge we've got today is that it's technological and it's geopolitical. So technological. When the world started to industrialize you know, a century and a half ago, we started moving into smaller and smaller homes and ultimately into apartments, which meant that children went from being an essential labor force to really expensive furniture that just happened to move and bitch back at you. Uh, that's a different cost structure, and you don't want as many pieces of moving furniture as you want free laborers. Uh, and what that meant in 1900 was different from 1920, was different from 1940, from 1960 to 1980 to 2000 today. But if you keep pushing that line, eventually people get to the point they have no kids or only one kid. That's kind of piece one. Uh, piece two is if you have a rapid societal transformation, demographic trends change from being on a century scale to a generational scale. And that is what we have seen with the global order. Because what we did in 1990 is basically say, all right, Cold War is over. 
Everyone who was part of our network before, whether it's Europe or Japan, is still part of our network, but it is now open to everyone else. And this is when Brazil joined the global order and China joined the global order. And we took the best technologies of the 1980s and hurled them with a bottomless supply of capital at parts of the world that had never industrialized. And so they did, in 10 years, what it took the Germans 50 years. You play that forward 30 years, and we now have a structure demographically that we've never seen before. It used to be that you'd have lots of children, and then teenagers, and then mature adults, and retirees, and it'd be a pyramid. The Germans plowed the path of going the opposite direction, because if your birth rates drop fast enough, for long enough, you then get more people in their 50s, and their 40s, and their 30s, and their 10s, and their children. What's happened now is that has been replicated across the world. And what is unique about this moment in history is that the 2020s, this decade, is the decade that the entire developed world and a substantial proportion of the developing world don't just simply move from having more mature adults than more children, but more retirees than mature adults than children. Everything we understand about economics does not work in that environment. Yeah. Fascism doesn't work. Well, I hope it doesn't work. Socialism doesn't work. Capitalism doesn't work. So everything that we have taught ourselves, the entirety of our adult lives for the last 12, 15 generations is about to be wrong. And that's happened at the same time the Americans are pulling the rug out from under, every, under everything. And COVID just happened to come in at this moment. So how, how should people go about, because that, that's the point I was trying to get to. It's such an extraordinary shift. It's such a big change that people in the financial world, people who are trying to invest in this, need to completely, to your point, rethink everything they think they know about investing. So, so just talk a little bit about the kind of mindset you need to be able to take this information in and how to process it in terms of, of rethinking the way you, you look at the entire world, basically. Well, hopefully I've got one answer that's at least partially satisfying and one that I, I know will not be. So let's start with the one you might actually like. <laughs> always leave them, always leave them <laughs> upset, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't happen everywhere and it doesn't happen at the same pace. Some countries are aging faster than others. Some countries have better geographies and so they can push this back further. So for example, uh, the United States, France, Argentina, and Turkey. Those are four countries that I think are going to do very well in this post-order environment. All of them have a chapter in the book. All of them have fairly healthy demographies. And so we're going to kind of emerge as poles of their own regional systems. I don't expect there to be a huge amount of trade or interaction among those systems, but there are systems that you can play in that broadly follow the rules that we're used to. Now, all of those systems are still aging. That will be a problem for everyone in time. But the United States population is aging, aging the most slowly of everyone except for New Zealand, which gives the United States time to either figure this out or copy other people or just slouch into Armageddon a half a century after everyone else. <laughs> so worst case scenario, you know the dollar zone is going to be there. You know the U.S. economy is going to be there. You know the U.S. political and strategic system is going to be there. It's smaller than Obviously, but it's the biggest, baddest, most functional part of that system, and it's still a pretty big pond. The second answer, the one you're not going to like, is this was supposed to be the fourth book. <laughs> <laughs> My plan was to figure out what our next ism is, uh, and that was how I was going to launch off book number four. Uh, and I was thinking that since this was all going to end in the 2020s, that I was going to have two, three years to figure this out. Right. Well, coronavirus has now come along. And most of the advanced countries are going to age out into mass retirement between 2022 and 2024, so two to four years from now. Coronavirus has now removed a year, and any country that drops into severe recession in 2020 will not be able to grow back to where they were in January by the end of next year. So they're facing demographic collapse and a change in economic structure before they can possibly recover to where they were three months ago. Now, going from where they were three months ago to this collapse system, having that transition period of two to three years to change how you've been operating for half a millennia, that's still a really freaking tall order. But now they won't even have that opportunity. So we are looking at hard crashes and hard collapses in a substantial proportion of the world, and I just don't have time to write the damn book. Well, let's come back, because I, I want to come back to how Corona has changed things. But there's, there's a couple more countries that I want to get to, because I, I found your analysis of them really, really interesting. 
Um, I, I don't want to throw you to the Middle East because it's way too way too complicated. We'll be here all day. But but the the one country in the Middle East that I found fascinating, you, you were another of it was Iran. So talk a little bit about how you see Iran, um, why it's so important, and the advantages it has. Uh, Persia is eternal. It's one of the very few countries in the world that doesn't have what I would consider a good internal geography. It's a series of highlands and mountains and, and valleys and plateaus that normally wouldn't link together. Uh, anywhere else in the world, it would have never been a single country. It would have been at best a failed state, but it is surrounded by terrain that is even worse, which has allowed the Persians of old, going way back pre-Greece, to consolidate into a durable, flexible, sophisticated, multicultural entity uh, long before anyone else even considered that as a possibility. And so it has been around in some form now in excess of 4,000 years, and it is not going to die anytime soon. That doesn't mean it's a leading light. Uh, this is an area that got gutted by the colonial period and has now been gutted again by the Trump administration. Iran is actually a net importer of crude now. It's gotten that yeah. bad. Uh, and that changes the math. So the strategic environment that's shaping up in the region at large is a fight between them and Saudi Arabia. And the Iranians are coming off of kind of a 15-year build in influence. The American war on terror was a miscalculation in, in several ways, but it honestly broke down the pre-existing structures in the region and allowed the Iranians to come in and sweep the board. But you can't control an empire without expending assets, and so they ended up overextending, and now they're broke and the whole thing is going to hell. Uh, the Saudis don't care what happens to the region so long as Iran doesn't get it. So the, right. the Saudis are busy spawning groups like ISIS or echo groups that are now starting to pop up throughout Iraq and Syria with a simple intent of burning the entire region down. And they're probably going to get exactly what they're after. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting because people in the West tend to know very little about Iran. It, it's, it's, it's kind of been a demonic state since really the late 70s, right, mid 70s. Uh, and so I think we've all grown up with this Iran equals bad guys look and, sure. and, and people and, and, the, and the kind of the messaging in the Western media about the country and the people is is wholly different to the reality on the ground. Perhaps you could just talk just a little bit about that. I've got a few more questions we want to get to. I know we've only got 15 minutes left and I've got some some questions coming in. But if you just just quickly, just that that, that difference in, in the reality and the perception of Iran. Sure. So Iran, unlike Saudi Arabia or any of the Gulf states, uh, you know, it's not a desert republic and it wasn't founded on oil. It was founded on a specific group, the Persians loosening up the definition of what Persian meant in order to evolve and absorb other groups. It is almost American in the way that they were able to define their ethnicity. Uh, and because of that, Iran has always been the store of cultural value going back to antiquity. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to like them. I mean, they're still a country, they were still an empire. But there's a reason why the United States got along so well with the Iranians once we got over the coup stuff in the 50s. But the 60s and the 70s, they were a firm ally. Uh, and we have a lot more culturally in common between Iran and the West in general than between the Arab world of the Arabian Peninsula and the West in general. Uh, it feels different. It feels alien. It is exotic. There's no arguing any of those points. But compared to the countries that border Persia, you know, this is a fairly close cultural cousin. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to jump uh, around here. I want to get back into Europe because the, you know, the, the country in Europe that, that you kind of peg as, I think you called it the winner, well, no, finally, I think you said, was, was France. And I was, I was surprised about that being English, obviously, uh, and, and, and not a little bit upset, but, but, but paint, paint this Brit a world in which France finally emerges as a, the major power in Europe. Sure. Uh, everyone in the Anglosphere loves to take the piss out of the French. I give, I give, I give. I, I've certainly had my fun doing that, too. Uh, but what we forget or what we refuse to admit, maybe is a better way to accurate, more better way to uh, phrase it, is that the French have won more military conflicts than any country in the world with the exception of the Brits. Uh, they're second. That's pretty good. In biotech, they're second. In manufacturing, they're second. In electronification, they're second. In computing, they're second. You know, this is a real place. 
And their physical security is actually pretty good. They really only have the Northern European plain that is a physical weak point. They've got mountains pretty much everywhere else. They're usually one of the top five navies in the world. Right now, I would say they're third. Once the Brits get their uh, supercarriers up and running, the Brits will, or the French will probably fall back to fourth, but that's still pretty good. Uh, they don't have to deal with any of the security concerns of a more aggressive Iran or a more aggressive Russia or collapsing China. That's problems for somebody else. So once the European system hits the rocks, which I think it will, the French are the country that is going to fall the least distance, but has the greatest capacity to rejuvenate itself. It's a self has a self-sustaining population. It's got an advanced industrial base. It's got a unified culture. It's financially flush. Uh, globally speaking, you know, these, this is a very successful country that has proven that it can survive the test of times. I mean, it's freaking 1,500 years old, and it's still going, and its best days are ahead of it. Is that cultural identity under threat from immigration, for example? Obviously, there's a lot of, there's a lot of religious tension in France now. Is that under threat, or is that something you think is manageable? I think it's manageable, but it's really hard to get a grip on the situation. Part of the whole egalite, uh, liberté, fraternité thing is that it's unconstitutional in France to collect ethnic data or religious data. Uh, and that means that unlike the United States, which does a thorough census every 10 years, so at least gets a more or less accurate picture of its population structure, in France you can't do that. So we really don't know. I mean, I can tell you that the population structure, demographically speaking, on the whole in France is pretty positive, but I can't tell you uh, what percentage of that are white Frenchmen versus Polish imports versus yeah. Algerian imports. We just don't know. And as long as the French refuse to have a conversation with themselves about the implications of that, and they just kind of fall back on this blind ide ideology that they're an inclusive society when in reality they're not, they are setting themselves up for an internal purge. That doesn't have to be violent. But French history suggests that it will be very violent. Yeah, right. You're right. Um, okay, so look, let's 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 now throw a lot of this into one question about Europe, because obviously the coronavirus um, has come along, as you said. It's it's upended everything. It's accelerated a lot of things. Um, and one thing I, I suspect it may accelerate is the is the end of Europe. And, and we've got a bunch of questions coming in uh, around this. So if I can try and frame it um, and try and get as many of those questions into one as I can. Um, talk a little bit about how you see Europe playing out from here, whether COVID is going to be the, the, the accelerant that kind of pulls this apart. Uh, obviously, we've seen the German constitutional court decision um, last week, which is, I, I think, probably far more material than, than the press coverage would have you believe. Um, you mentioned there that the French were financially flush when they, they seemed to be fairly weak in terms of uh, the economy. So just kind of wrap Europe into, into a ball for us. Explain what happens from here, whether COVID does accelerate at the end of it, whether it holds together, and if it does, how particularly, I guess, the French and the Germans and the Italians come out of this. Sure. So the two big problems are demographic and structural. Uh, the demographic situation is pretty straightforward. Europe is vastly aged past the point of no return. Um, the only three European countries that have demographies that are anywhere near healthy are Sweden, not in the Eurozone, Britain, no longer in the EU at all, and France, which is perfectly willing to take its marbles and go home. It tries to keep as much of its mar market uh, within the French system as possible. They don't like to integrate if they can avoid it. Everyone else is well past terminal which means that the only way that sort of demographic can function is if it can export all of its product, which means that they are now completely 100% dependent upon importing countries like the United States for the market and security countries like the United States in order to provide the structure that allows those exports in the first place. All of that is going away. All of that will be gone in just a couple of years, which means everything that has made Europe what it is, all the foundational issues, the environment that has allowed the EU to exist, is just about gone. And the question is, how does Europe culturally adapt to an environment of negative growth for the foreseeable future and breakdowns among the supply chains that are dependent upon a global order that no longer exists? So either a country will have the financial, economic, and strategic heft to hold a tighter group of countries close to it, or it won't. 
Uh, I would argue that the French by far have the most going for them in that regard because they can keep Iberia on board, probably keep Italy on board, and provide a certain degree of security and energy access that other countries in Europe just can't. Uh, I would also argue that Germany, by a um, should I put this, a force of personality, is going to be able to marshal Central Europe into staying on its side because the alternative is Russia or destitution. And I would argue that the United Kingdom, because of how long it took the UK to figure out this whole Brexit thing, and it's not done yet, really has no option but to become an economic satellite of the United States. Because the, the EU doesn't have anything that can help the UK now, and the UK, I'm sorry, yeah, the EU doesn't have anything to help the UK now, and the things that the UK is demanding of the EU are things that the EU just doesn't have on offer. Uh, those talks are going to end a complete collapse this year, and every single day that those talks linger on before we get to the eventual, eventual rejection is one more day, that, or one fewer day, that the Brits will have when they finally go to the Trump administration and ask for a deal. And that deal is going to be ugly, but it's going to be the only thing on offer, and the Brits will take it. Do, do, do you think uh, Europe holds through this? I mean, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a roadmap there if it does fall apart, but do you think there's some way they can, they can hold this thing together, given COVID, given the extra strains it's putting on the system? If you had asked me 48 hours ago, I would say there was 100% no chance whatsoever this is going to hold together. Uh, there's no security basis, there's no economic basis, there's no financial basis, there's no demographic basis, there's just no way that this works. But... In the last two days, the announcement by uh, Macron and Merkel to put together a half a trillion dollar bailout fund that might actually be mutualized. Um, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not going to say it's big enough. But that's the first yeah. time that Germany has publicly admitted that it might actually have to pay for Europe for it to continue to exist. And that realization publicly is the most positive step that I have seen in European affairs in the last 20 years. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, okay, I'm going to jump to a couple of questions uh, before we finish. Um, China and India, do you see any potential conflict there? No, they can't get at each other. The Himalayas are in the way or a bunch of jungle mountains are in the way. So they're not going to like each other and there's going to be some competition over Southeast Asia. But I think China's situation is so unstable and India's situation is just so poor uh, they don't have the financial capacity to impose any sort of reality on anyone. So you'll, you'll have them kind of sniping at each other in that region. Uh, but ultimately, I think the Chinese competition is going to fall away. And Japan is a far more likely long-term competitor. But Japan is so far away from India that the Indians really don't feel threatened. I think partnership is a more likely outcome there. And, and is, is the India-Pakistan uh, constant squabble nothing to worry about, or is there a, a chance of miscalculation there, do you think? Well, if you're in a different hemisphere, it's nothing to worry about. Right. Uh, we're on the far side of the continent, it's nothing to worry about. But yes, there's always a chance that that could blow up. Now, once the Pakistanis lose their Chinese sponsorship, uh, the question will be whether anyone else decides that they're distrustful of India enough to pick up that mantle. I don't see any obvious candidates, uh, just assuming Japan plays its cards right and they're pretty savvy on this sort of thing, it won't be them. The biggest problem I would say is if the Europeans get back into the game in a hostile way, that's a long shot, then maybe. Uh, but I think Pakistan is going to be more or less on its own. That's not really great. That's not really awful for anyone. Uh, India has basically made its development model for the last 50 years ignoring Pakistan. I don't see any reason that's going to change. And so as long as they've got this big desert buffer between most of their territories, I think it'll be relatively calm. I think if the Indians and the Pakistanis were going to get involved in a real knockdown dragout drag-out war that involved atomics, it probably would have happened 20 years ago right. before they established the red line. I don't want to say they trust each other now, but they certainly have learned how to manage their distrust. So, so when, when you look around the world, um, as you do, which areas concern you? Which areas are you kind of paying the most attention to in terms of, uh, as someone wrote in the questions, a potential black swan? Sure. So let me do short, medium, and long. Short term, my biggest concern is Mexico. Uh, Mexico is facing a pandemic uh, that is every bit as disastrous as what's happening in the United States, but they're doing it without the healthcare system that's necessary to recover while fighting an internal civil war with their own cartels. 
that is the biggest threat to American manufacturing supply chains right now, and they're not going to get past this probably until we have a vaccine. So we're talking a year or more. That's a fair amount of degradation. That's not something I'm looking forward to. Midterm, the Americans couldn't care less about the Middle East right now. And we've already withdrawn most of the troops we surged into Saudi Arabia and the Gulf six months ago. They're almost all gone already, which means the next time we have a clash in that region, the U.S. just isn't going to be there. And I don't think anyone in the world of energy has priced that in. You add in the fact that our brief little stint with negative prices and ongoing period of low prices means that we're probably going to lose 10 to 20 million barrels per day of oil production uh, for several years this year. You have insufficient crude in the market. You have a supply shock because of a military conflict. That adds up to be a real disaster really quick, and that will induce the Trump administration or its successor to simply ban oil exports from the United States and separate the North American system in energy from the rest of the world. If you're in North America, that's more or less okay. If you're in the rest of the world, that is very close to the worst case scenario. And that assumes the U.S. doesn't do anything to take advantage of the situation, which, really? Right. Uh, <laughs> it's like, so the United States goes from being the guarantee of global energy to a primary breaker of global energy. And that will allow the United States or really anyone who has a degree of energy security to break whatever country they want on whatever time frame, whenever they want. Long term, if China doesn't make it, Japan basically takes over as the de facto power of East Asia. We've been here before, too. And the, Chinese, the Japanese already have better relations with the Southeast Asians than I would argue the Chinese or the Americans. And as I mentioned, there might even be a potential room for cooperation with the Indians. That gives us something that India, sorry, that gives us something that Asia has never had. A local superpower with a navy and with trust throughout the entire rim. Now, it is not a foregone conclusion that the Japanese or Japanese alliance will fall into conflict with any other power in the world, most notably the United States. Uh, if anything, the Japanese understand that the United States has a number of red lines and a number of red buttons that it is willing to push. But we haven't had that kind of a thessalocracy is the technical term, a seaborne merchant empire since the time of the British Empire. Can you imagine how the British Empire would have evolved if it had nuclear weapons? Mm -hmm. That's my big concern moving forward. Now, that's a concern for 10 plus years, probably 20 plus years down the line, but that is likely to be the next big chapter of human history. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to try and squeeze one more question there because something you said there kind of rattle around my head. When you talked about China not making it, um, you obviously thought that through. What does that look like if China doesn't make it? What does that look like? Because it must be horrendously messy. Now remember, the Han Chinese have been around in some form for 3,500 years, but China as a unified entity yeah. outside of the global order era has only existed for about a century of that. Chinese history is replete with horrific ways how it can all go to hell in a very short period of time. Now, if I were a betting man and I had to kind of sketch out how this is going to go, we're going to have an energy crisis, we're going to have a demographic crisis, a consumption crisis, an export crisis, and a financial crisis, all more or less at the same time. It doesn't really matter which one of them cooks this off. All of them are bad, and all of them they're going to reinforce. In that environment, the northern core Han territories, you know, northern China, Beijing, that area, it kind of devolves into a neo-Maoist tyranny. That's where three quarters of the population lives. And this farmland re requires something like seven times the global average in inputs in order to just keep itself sufficient. That's going to break down. So we're going to have famine. We're going to have a dictatorial regime. Uh, the areas out west, Zhejiang, Tibet, probably will be on their own. That isn't necessarily a net improvement for them in terms of living standards, despite what the politics might suggest. South, uh, Yangtze, down to Hong Kong, probably become de facto independent city-states. We've seen this show before, too. Mm -hmm. And they will likely start integrating with foreign countries, maybe even foreign companies. Uh, remember that the Australians did a big piece of this the last time around. Obviously, the French and the Brits and the Russians and the Americans played in that particular pond. 
but these city-states have historically gotten more of their food from the wider world than even from their own countrymen. They've never really been part of a unified China, except for in some very specific circumstances, like right now. Uh, there, you already have China in four functional pieces. Well, functional might not be the best word, uh, but functionally independent entities. Uh, that's the most likely outcome, and that is an outcome I can absolutely see the Japanese encouraging. Yeah. Peter, we, we, we've run out of time. Uh, in fact, we've run over, but I, I mean, I could talk to you all day. I, I, I'm going to do this for you because anyone watching this, this book is fantastic. I, you, you can sit back. You don't have to plug it. I'll plug it for you, which is way more impressive than other people. Plug. <laughs> but seriously, I, I mean, as you've seen for the last hour, um, a lot of what we've talked about is laid out in great detail in the book, and it is a, it's a fabulous, fabulous read. I, I, can, I can wholeheartedly endorse it. Um, Peter, thank you so much. Please let everybody know. Um, where they can follow you, where they can find you, all that good stuff, all that social media stuff. Sure. So I'm on at, at Twitter at PeterZion.com. So P-E-T-E-R-Z-E-I-H-A-N. And I have a newsletter, Zion.com slash newsletter. It is free. It will always be free. You can always find out what's coming up with video conferences and related events on that. But we try to do a newsletter a week of late with uh, coronavirus since I'm not traveling anywhere. It's been more like three a week. There we go. And, and uh, one more word, if you get the chance to see Peter speak live, take that opportunity because he's, uh, he's fantastic. Peter, thank you so much. Hopefully uh, I'll see you in person again soon. Uh, but in the meantime, be well and, and don't look at that wallpaper on your way out because it'll give you some <laughs> kind of acid trip. Okay, my thanks to everybody for, uh, for joining us today. Um, hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, I will see you all again. Well, my guest will be the phenomenal David Rosenberg. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.